This is Salt and Spine. I was always hustling for the next gig in New York. And I don't know, I think it was because of that really experimental time that I had. And suddenly being in nature where I felt more calm and free and something about that time was very pivotal for me creatively. And the place, it was so much dependent on the the place that I was in. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Erin Gleason. Now, when Erin moved to New York upon graduating from art school, she immediately started hustling, working unpaid internships, walking dogs, working in restaurants. Today, she's running a successful cookbook empire. And in this week's episode, we'll talk with Erin about her latest book, The Forest Feast Road Trip. When Aaron's husband moved to California for work, Aaron came along with him. On a whim, they rented a cabin in the woods, and Aaron returned to her photography with the goal of working with publishers in San Francisco. She'd always been drawn towards food as a subject, so she started shooting recipes that she cooked in her own kitchen and gathering them together on a blog, which would also serve as her portfolio. A newfound freedom came into her photos as she worked with dreamy fog rolling in from the ocean and golden sunshine bathing the deck of her cabin. With that, the forest feast aesthetic was born, and Erin began including her own watercolor artwork and handwriting on top of her photos. Not long after getting started, she was offered a cookbook deal, and the first Forest Feast book was born. To this day, Erin still designs, illustrates, writes, lays out the books before handing them over to her editors. The latest book is special. It takes home cooks on a culinary journey all across California. Staying in out-of-the-way towns and funky Airbnbs, Erin tells the story of the people she meets along the way, the produce that she finds, and the meals that were cooked and inspired by her travels. Paid subscribers this week will receive access to to two delicious recipes from the book. On our Substack, you'll find recipes for Aaron's popular blender muffins and my favorite, the walnut enchiladas. You can subscribe for just a few dollars a month to receive bonus recipes and special content like essays, Q&As with authors and chefs, and author-read excerpts from the cookbooks we feature. Today's interview is also a really fun one. We recorded it on the deck, on Aaron's back deck, where she shot so many of her cookbooks and enjoyed the sounds and the peace of the woods surrounding her home. So let's head there now to Erin Gleason's Bay Area deck, where she joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're (laughs) thrilled to have you and to be here on your beautiful deck in the South Bay. It's a lovely, peaceful Friday morning. Thank you so much for hosting us here. Thanks for coming out to the woods. (laughs) Of course. It's great to get out of the studio and into nature a bit. Um, And we're here to talk about your work and your career and your newest book, your fifth book, Forest Feast Road Trip. So we'll get to this book in a minute. But, you know, we always like to start by learning a little bit more about you and your background, your life, what brought you to to this point today. So we like to start at the beginning. I I know you grew up in, in California, right? In Sebastopol? I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Sebastopol in an apple orchard. Pretty okay. pretty rural, bucolic spot. My parents were big gardeners and there's a lot of outdoor play, a lot of time in nature, which I think has had an impact on me. Sure. Yeah. We were vegetarian and even vegan for a while for most of growing up. And... Yeah, I have one brother. Okay. And I was really into art as a kid. I took a lot of art classes, watercolor painting from the time I was about five. So all these things that are sort of core to your identity today really started at an early age then, the art, the food, all of it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you said you lived on an apple orchard, right? We did. Yeah. <laughs> Was it a small apple orchard? Very small. Very small. Yeah, a few uh-huh. acres. And okay. it was not my parents' job, like okay. selling the apples, but but it was just a pretty spot that they found and built a house in the orchard. Uh-huh. And we sold the apples every fall. Okay. Um, I think they made juice from them okay. usually, but yeah. we had like four different types of apples. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's lovely. Mostly just fun to play in. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. And, and you mentioned you spent a part of your childhood vegetarian, right? You're, I think your yeah. mother, when you were like seven or eight, mm-hmm. decided to switch to vegetarian lifestyle for the family? Yeah. So she got really influenced by a local doctor, Dr. McDougall in Sonoma County, who was giving cooking classes. And she was sort of interested in learning how to cook in a healthier way. This is kind of like hippie 1980s vibe. Sure. Um, and 
yeah, she just started taking these classes and decided to start cooking that way more at home. And all of his classes were vegan. So we started kind of incorporating that into our diet. But I think they were pretty flexible with us. Like if we were at a friend's house or at a family Mm -hmm. holiday or a special occasion or at a restaurant, they would let us have whatever we wanted. So it wasn't super strict. Sure. Sometimes we would get a stomach ache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we try to do that with our kids too. Uh-huh. Now we're vegetarian at home, but if they're at a birthday party and want to eat something, they can. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so obviously food seems like it was a big part of your childhood. You have the apple orchard. I think you had a, a vegetable farm at your house too. A big a, vegetable a small garden. garden, not yep. farm, garden. Yeah. Were you and your family cooked mostly at home? Were yes. you interested in cooking from a young yeah. age too? Yeah, yeah. very much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I loved cooking with my, my parents. And I remember my grandma visiting a lot and doing a lot of baking with her. Mm-hmm. I don't do a ton of baking now, but I definitely think about spending a lot of time in the kitchen. Yeah. And I think it was like exploratory for my mom too. She was like learning all these new recipes. I remember her saying she was like a real meat and potato kind of cook and she could really cook anything, but then shifting to this new type of cooking was a a whole learning curve. So there's a lot of experimentation in the kitchen, which I was kind of watching and interested in and helping with. And it was hard, right? It was like making veggie burgers out of tofu (laughs) and they were falling apart with egg replacer and (laughs) wheat germ and everything. So we've come a long way, but I remember thinking that was kind of an interesting process to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're you're interested in that. You're also interested in art from an early age, mm-hmm. which then I know you you go on to study art in college. Yep. Talk a little bit about like as you get to that college age and you're starting to think about your career trajectory, you decide to pursue art. Walk us through like those early visions of what you were going to do. Yeah. So uh, I was always really just interested in art and did a lot of art, took a lot of classes, all types of mediums and um when I went to college, I wasn't sure that I wanted to to major in art. Okay. Um, I went to UC Santa Barbara, and you didn't have to declare a major going in. A couple of the other places I applied to, you did, and I declared nutritional science. Okay. So I knew, I, I guess I was interested in food. Sure, yeah, uh-huh, right. <laughs> um, uh, but when I got to Santa Barbara, um, I just took like a lot of general classes. But then my junior year, I studied abroad. Uh-huh. In Italy, and that was the year I really got into photography. And I I went to the L'Accademia de Belle Arti, the Fine Arts College in Bologna. Okay, and took mostly just photography and sculpture, and traveled a lot that year, and just took so many photos. That was like the year I got my first big camera. Mm-hmm. But I think even like going into that, and you know, wanting to start majoring in art, my parents were always really supportive. I have a an uncle who's a fine art painter and he's been very successful. Um, and I always kind of look to him and his career and he also lived in Santa Barbara. So it was fun for me. I would go visit his studio while I was in college. And so I think having that as a model and then also having parents who were very supportive of me majoring in art, you know, I think they knew that it's like not the easiest career path, but they were just like, you'll figure it out. Yes. And it took a while, but I think I sort of did at this point. Yeah. So I think having that support was, you know, monumental. Yeah. I wasn't like a minor in art. I was I was majored in art. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that year you studied abroad, how did that impact your relationship to food? Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, Bologna is called sometimes the culinary capital of Italy. So right. the food is, of course, amazing. And I was vegetarian, so it was somewhat limiting in the things that maybe I tried. Sure. But I loved it. I lived with four Italian girls and watched them cook at home a lot. It was a lot of pasta, but done yeah. so many different beautiful ways. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think, you know, Italy has, of course, the most incredible ingredients. So I think I, something I learned from them was um, you know, cooking with few ingredients, but making them really good quality in- ingredients, like really beautiful tomatoes and great olive oil and good mm-hmm. cheese yeah. from the deli. And yeah, I think um, food became very interesting. Yeah. And I started taking a lot of photos of the food. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. And that sort of came back in when I returned to my senior year at Santa Barbara. I was still very interested in taking photos and Often it was of food. Sure. Yes. <laughs> and then after, is, do you go to New York immediately after college? Yeah. I went, I did like a, a cross country road trip okay. uh, with a couple friends and then just went home for like a month or two. And then I moved to New York with very little money and no job and uh-huh. a one month sublet on the Upper West Side. Uh-huh. And I had two friends from college who had also moved there, but I wasn't living super close to them. So, I mean, it was scary, but I felt like, 
it was something I had to do just to try. I had a very influential photo teacher when I was in college who was from New York and always talking about New York and always talking about the photojournalism at the New York Times. And mm -hmm. I think all of that talk really made me interested in going to New York. I felt like all the magazines were there, you know, some of the best art direction and just everything amazing in the photo world was kind of in New York. And I yeah. wanted to go try and be a part of it. And were you working full time? I know you were a freelance photographer taking assignments and things, started to yeah. take some food photography. But what was your what did your career look like while you were in New York? Yeah, it was a hustle. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was walking dogs. I okay, was a yep. nanny. Uh -huh. I was working at a restaurant. Sure. I was doing people's headshots in Central Park sure. that I got off Craigslist. You know, <laughs> it's uh -huh. like a total hustle. Yeah. But meanwhile, I was also working in photo studios, mostly unpaid internships. Okay. So I worked for some amazing photographers. Um, kind of the, uh, a range of photographers. I worked for a National Geographic photographer, Steve McCurry, okay. who's famous for that photo of the Afghani girl with the green eyes. Uh -huh. Perhaps you've seen it. Yeah. Um, and I got to work in his studio and see what his life was like. And I cool. got to work for a still life photographer who shot mostly for Martha Stewart. And I worked for okay. a commercial photographer who shot food for ad campaigns like McDonald's. And so I got to see a lot of different types of thing, things in um but it was so hard, you know, kind of just to do all these unpaid internships and not yeah. really know where it was going. And I kept applying for these like kind of full time studio jobs, being a studio assistant. And it was just I never got one. So I decided that um, being a teacher and an artist would be a good combination for me. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go back to school to get my master's in photography. Mm -hmm. And I started at Columbia at Teachers College and I spent a semester there and it was wonderful. But I decided that I needed a little bit more hands on just practical practice with the art and photography and with the equipment, less kind of theory. Sure. So I, I transferred to School of Visual Arts and finished my MFA there. Okay. And while I was there, it was sort of like they set you off on this kind of initial journey of like, okay, let's see what what your your topic's going to be. Like, go out and shoot a million things and let's see what you come back with. And I just kept coming back with food. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that kind of became my thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then at some point, you do you meet your husband in New York? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think it was like around the time I started grad school, we okay. met. Okay. Just at through friends at a house party, and yeah, he was working in New York City government for the um, a New York State senator, uh -huh. and um, yeah. So we met early on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not to skip over, you know, all of this, but eventually your husband's job brings you back yes. to California, to the Bay Area, which is how you end up here. Is this, yep. you move right to this house? A different house, actually, right down the area. street. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So John, um, uh, after working in politics, he decided to go to rabbinical school. Uh -huh. So that's a five-year program. So we were in New York another five years, and I finished grad school. So he, when he finished and became a rabbi, his first job was here in Silicon Valley. Sure. And so we moved out here for that job. Yeah. And that was a little over 10 years ago. And yeah, I think we sort of came out, we were living in Brooklyn at the time and we came out for this whirlwind weekend to try and find a place. And we didn't know the area at all. I grew up like two and a half hours from here. So right. I really didn't know this area. And just by chance, we found an ad for this little cabin and it looked cute in the photos mm -hmm. on Craigslist. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, okay, let's go see this. Like, it doesn't seem like it's too far. And then we're driving up the road, this crazy windy road, which you just drove I up. Just did. Uh -huh. yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, there's no way we're going to drive this every day, but the guy's waiting for us. So we better go. Uh -huh. And then we got there and I walked out on the deck and I was like, okay, how far is this to your office? Like yeah. maybe this could work. Yeah. And there was just something really special about the light there. I think that really struck me. So right now on this deck, we're facing east, but uh -huh. the other cabin faced west. Okay. And so we would get this dramatic golden late afternoon light. Sure. And also right now we're like just above the fog line mm -hmm. and over there you're kind of in it. So we would get these really dramatic, I mean, it's like a half mile from here, but right. these really dramatic banks of fog rolling in because the coast is not far away. Yeah. And those banks of fog were like light boxes in the sky it was just like this really soft beautiful light to be able to shoot outside yeah so those things kind of made it even more enticing for me to yeah. live there uh -huh. yeah so we just like signed a lease and came out a couple weeks later and just 
what total 180 yes (laughs) brooklyn to the woods yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. exactly but a perfect spot for you know photography as you mentioned and just a a peaceful lifestyle and you're starting to as then you move out here you're starting to think about what you're gonna do Mm -hmm. um and this blog comes about right this idea for a blog cooking from your, your csa box essentially right yep yeah so um you know, it was sort of a weird transitional time because it had been such a hustle in New York. And I felt like I had moved to New York to like create this certain career that didn't quite materialize the way I was hoping. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had some good successes, but I still wanted so much more. Maybe you always feel like that at any point in your career, right? I don't know. But um, I was teaching at a college and also just freelancing a lot of different things, but really hoping to get into cookbooks. Uh So when we moved here... You know, suddenly John was going to his job every day. We had just gotten married. We Uh didn't have kids yet. And I was alone at this like new cabin buried in boxes (laughs) trying to figure out what the next phase of my life was going to be. And we were getting this beautiful CSA, community supported agriculture farm box of local produce every week Mm -hmm. um, that was delivered to his office. That's how we kind of got introduced to it. And so he was bringing it home every week and I was just looking for the most colorful items. And I thought, I'm going to shoot a portfolio that I can show to editors in San Francisco and try to get jobs shooting cookbooks because there's some publishers out here. Yeah. And I thought that was that's going to be my direction. I'm going to try to get cookbook jobs. And I started making this portfolio and I printed some of them for meetings and stuff. But mostly I was just putting images online and I just started a Tumblr as a way to have kind of like an easy free website to like put stuff online. Sure. Um, as like a new project, I had a separate kind of eringlison.com type website yeah, yeah, <laughs> that is no longer. Uh-huh. But um, this is kind of like my new side project. And I got bored shooting food on my dining room table. So one day I just kind of walked a plate of kale salad out into the woods and put it on a mossy stump and mm-hmm. took a photo. And I thought, hmm, this is more interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that just kind of became my new direction. And I was taking all the, the food photos outside. Previously, I'd always shot indoors with lights, uh-huh. kind of a studio setup. But being able to shoot outdoors in that natural golden light or that really foggy diffuse light was really different and freeing for me. So I was just having fun with it. And I had always thought of myself as like a photographer, like this is my lane. I need to like choose this path, right? This is what I do. Other people are food stylists or art directors or illustrators or, you know, all the different parts. Um, and this was the first time where I kind of like let myself dabble in all of it. Sure. And I was like, I'm going to just, you know, make the food myself. I'm not a chef, but I'm making really, really simple things. I'd worked in the kitchens with a lot of chefs watching them and got kind of inspiration. But I was making much simpler food yeah. just kind of from my own hobby of cooking at home yeah. and having dinner parties and whatever. But it was the first time that I started to introduce watercolor illustration into the layout. So I, I wanted to kind of create these illustrations for the blog that would show the recipes instead of just typing them out. So I started playing around because I had taught Photoshop at FIT at the Fashion Institute of Technology in in New York. And Uh so, I don't know, I was just sort of bringing in my love of Photoshop and making these layouts with text and watercolor to try and show the steps of each recipe that I was making. And that became a, a unique look for the blog. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of been your your signature aesthetic throughout the Forest Feast yeah. career of yours, right? And it mm-hmm. developed right sort of at the beginning. Yeah, you it really did. brought those elements together. Yeah, yeah, and I think I hadn't had kind of a a calm moment to take a break and play around. Sure. <laughs> I feel like I was always hustling for the next gig in New York. And I mean, I had other creative product, projects and I think nothing ever quite took off like this one. And I don't know, I think it was because of that really experimental time that I had and suddenly being in nature where I felt more calm and free and yeah, I don't know. Something about that time was very pivotal for me creatively and the place. It was so much dependent on the the place that I was in. Yes. Yeah. And so you're you're doing this blog, you're Tumblr, you're you're mm-hmm. putting you know you're putting your content out there essentially, yeah. and thinking you want to get some cookbook photography deals, and then you just get a call for a cookbook deal of your own. Am I simplifying that too much, or is that essentially what yeah, happened? Sort of happened like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this was like 2012, 2013. Okay. And food blogs were still new-ish. Social media was very new. Mm-hmm. I think Instagram was pretty new, and. Yeah. Um, 
I was getting kind of picked up by other bigger blogs <laughs> and they were sharing my recipes. Pinterest was a huge driver and still is yeah. of sharing my content. So things were getting pinned a lot and shared more. Mm -hmm. And I, it sort of was out of my hands. I didn't, I was not doing any promotion, but I think, you know, the, it, things weren't as saturated then as they are now. And it was just easier to kind of be seen, I think, if you were doing something a little different. Sure. And I think just visually it looked so different than the other food blogs at the time that it just kind of got noticed. Yeah. So within about six months of starting that blog, a literary agent in New York called me and said, I think you should turn your blog into a book. Uh -huh. And I was like, what? I'm not ready for that. That's something I'm going to do like, well, maybe like way down in my career. And she was like, no, I think you're ready and I'm going to, I can help you do it. Yeah. And she had some other authors that she represented that I really was wowed by and impressed with. So she was the real deal. And she, I mean, I still work very closely with her. She's I owe her everything. Yeah. <laughs> She's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing that that it, it happened so quickly like that for you and has been so successful for you. And you're when you produce your books, I'd love to know a little bit more about your process because mm -hmm. you do so much of the work. Some cookbook authors mm -hmm. hire a photographer, hire food stylists, yeah. uh, you know, have someone who lays out the book. I know I'm sure you have support for producing books. Yeah. But at the same time you're involved with the photography, you shoot the photos you're involved with, I think even the page design, like you're yeah. really involved in the process. So what has that been like for you now to do five books and be that involved in that yeah. way? Yeah. So early on when we were pitching the first book idea, we had, a, we were very lucky to have um, a few different publishers interested. Okay. And not everyone was willing to give me full creative control, but uh -huh. Abrams, who I ended up choosing yeah. was. And so um, I think they weren't quite sure what to do with me either because I really did want to do all the all the things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of let me do it all. And so basically for each book I sign on mm -hmm. and it takes a couple months to negotiate the contract. And then once I get the green light, I start making the list of so each of my books is 100 recipes. So I mm -hmm. make a list of 100 recipes and I just start shooting them. <laughs> yeah. And I take all the photos outside and then I usually shoot a lot first and then I start with the layouts of the pages. But, you know, I'm always collecting dishes and props and things mostly from rummage sales sure. and backdrops. I paint a lot of the backdrops just on poster board with like watercolors uh -huh. um, or I collect fabrics. I also like print my own fabrics like off of my artwork. I get uh -huh. them like printed at like digitally full color printed and use those kind of as backdrops. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so it takes me about nine months once I start going to create a, a basic outline. I mean, it's not an outline, basically a finished book. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and so it's like having a baby. <laughs> yes. So at the end of nine months, Same I like, uh -huh. I basically don't have much interaction with my editor that during that time. I mean, she's always there for me to ask questions and bounce ideas off, but pretty much it's just me working by myself. Yeah out here on wow. the deck <laughs> uh -huh. or in the kitchen. Yeah. And I have a lot of people help me recipe test. Sure. Uh, mostly friends and family. This last recent book, The Force Feast Road Trip, I opened it up to my newsletter community and uh -huh. I had a lot more testers, which was really fun. Yeah. And I've had assistants help me with different parts of things along the way. But but mostly it, it's me working by myself, which I actually enjoy. These last couple of years, I've realized I'm more of an introvert than I, yeah. I thought I was. But at the end of that nine months, then I kind of deliver this whole almost finished looking book in digital form. It's all Photoshop files to my my editor. And we we have a good three months of editing back and forth. Uh -huh. And then there's a designer at the publishing company who goes over all of my work, translates everything to InDesign. Mm -hmm. I should be working in InDesign. I'm just not very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just stick yeah. with Photoshop for the time being. Sure. Um, and they're very tolerant of me. <laughs> but um so they convert it to InDesign and then the designer, he makes all of my margins right. And mm -hmm. and also he has lots of suggestions to make spacing look right or different, I don't know, sizing of things. And he kind of moves things around to make it it look just way better than I delivered it. Um, and then sometimes we take recipes out and we, um, you know, I end up retesting things and swapping new things in. And But um, basically in about a year, a little over a year, the book is done. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's really remarkable. I feel like we've talked to lots and lots of cookbook authors and you have so much creative control and really are producing everything for the book yourself, which is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. I yeah. mean, I get to do, um, 
all the illustration too, which is really fun. So uh-huh. I paint on paper and then I scan things in and then I overlay them right, in layers Photoshop. on Photoshop. And yeah. then I, a lot of the text in the book is my handwriting. So I write mm-hmm. on a tablet and I write into like an empty layer on Photoshop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's fun. It's one big art project to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Your your first couple of books, your first, I think, three books were really sort of rooted here in the forest, in this this home and your previous home. And your last two books have started to take this this life than this aesthetic that you've created and expanded a bit, right? The the book before this is Forest Feast Mediterranean, where Mm -hmm. you spent several months with your family in the Mediterranean and traveling. And now your latest book is the road trip book, which takes you all around the state of California. So tell us a little bit about for the road trip book, what the process was like for doing this road trip i understand you started with like one massive road trip Mm -hmm. 2500 miles like Mm -hmm. all across the state yep yeah so you know having done the mediterranean book i think we were interested in doing another travel book and at first thought it would be really fun to do a cross-country road trip book yeah and that just became a little bit daunting and just logistically yeah (laughs) and also it's a much bigger kind of research project yeah and i think i've approached this not as like a you know this is very much a personal journey road trip more than kind of a super researched travel guide or culinary right. guide. But yeah, John and I came up with the idea of doing a big family California road trip and pitched it to them and they liked it. And it's sort of an extension of the first three books, which are very much inspired by cooking from a cabin in the woods. So this is taking that idea on the road. Right. And we stayed in 10 different cabin-ish places around California. Uh-huh. Some were family and friends homes and some were vacation rentals. But the idea was to kind of explore different parts of California. Even though I grew up here, there's so much I realized that I didn't really know. And John didn't grow up in New York. And so, mm. he, you know, there's a lot of California that he really wanted to explore too. Sure. But in terms of itinerary, it was it's very much a collaboration between me and John. <laughs> yeah. And he is really the mastermind behind the places that we went and the route that we took. And he's okay. really good at all of that. So he'd be like, these two nights we're staying in this area. And I would go look for the cabin and it'll be like, from there, we're driving here. And then I would look for the, you know, the place that we were going to stay. Right. So the unique part about this book that's different than the others is that I photographed each of the homes that we stayed in. And they're they're not extravagant homes. Some of them were pretty small cottage type places, but like kind of that rustic cabiny feel that I love so much. Yeah. But each one was kind of positioned in a different region of California that was also agriculturally interesting to me uh, or different from each other. Like we went uh, down to Palm Springs area and we tried to do visits of farms and ranches and wineries and different places nearby to learn about what was being grown. And of course, like a million farmer's markets. I think John is sure. like, by the end of it, he's like, I don't ever need to go to another farmer's market. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, down there we went to a date farm and saw these beautiful date palms and met these two farmers who have been growing date palms for years and learned about their process and ate their dates. And I had no idea there were so many different varieties of dates uh-huh. and how they taste differently and how citrus is grown between the palms to kind of keep them. They kind of um, do really well together. Okay. So the, it's just beautiful to photograph. So that kind of informed a date recipe that's in the book for right. a date shake. Uh-huh. And then there's always for each of the recipes, there's almost always a photo of the place that inspired that recipe behind the text of the of the recipe itself. Right. So it's super visual. You get kind of like a context of where the recipe is inspired by. So then contrast that to going up to Humboldt where it's like a rocky coastline and redwoods hitting the beach and yeah. foggy and not as warm and kind of like this wooded feel that is perhaps a little bit more similar to where we live in the Santa Cruz mountains, but that produces beautiful cheeses and different mm-hmm. types of foods. And so there's a a cheese recipe that's, you know, kind of a salad with some humble cheese that's inspired by that area and some of sure. the dark leafy greens that are grown there. Different areas were kind of giving me ideas for, for what to for what to include in the book. And I just took lots of notes based on things that we saw growing, things that we ate, things that we tried at restaurants, things that we ate at people's houses. Yeah. And all of that kind of just came into the fold of creating the recipes. So it's, like I said, very much a, a yeah. personal account of a road trip. <laughs> right, right. And and you were lucky that you were able to get a lot of this done pre-pandemic. Yes. Although, you know, road trips were a little bit easier than other yes. sorts of travel, but you kind of had this big trip out of the way and then could work on the book. Yeah. As we were locking down, essentially. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. So like you said, we did 2,500 miles for our main trip and that was in the summer of 2019. Okay. So we started here in the Santa Cruz mountains and went south first, like through Big Sur. We went uh-huh. along the, the beautiful Highway 1, of course, yes. and stayed in this little craftsman cabin kind of near Carmel and Big Sur and then kept going south into Santa Barbara. We went to a friend's ranch near Santa Barbara and, you know, picked apricots with her, which uh-huh. we ended up turning into apricot salsa the next morning on our breakfast burritos. And yeah. those like little things unexpected came up along the way, which is also like the best part about road trips. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then we went into LA, stayed on an urban farm in uh-huh. a in a yurt a with an yurt. outdoor yeah. kitchen, which was so fun and beautiful. Yeah. The people who owned it, she I think is a stylist and he's a photographer and they're just like this amazing creative duo. Their house is right above where we stayed and okay. it was all just beautifully styled and all these plants and cute lights hanging. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> we found that on Airbnb. It's called Sky Farm Yurt. Okay. And anyways, we continued there into Big Bear, stayed in an A-frame, went to the lake. And then we went up the eastern part of California through the Sierras, stayed in Lone Pine. And actually, that was like a big stretch. So from Big Bear all the way north up to like Tahoe area. Yeah. We wanted to do, it's kind of a long drive. Yeah. And we wanted to do it in about two days. And we weren't sure where we were going to stop in the middle. I couldn't find any place interesting to rent in the middle. So I was like, we're just going to stay at a roadside hotel for like one night before we get to the next place. Yeah. And by chance, the night before, John, on the map, just like on Google Maps, saw that there was a ranch and he tapped on it. They had a website and what do you know? They rented cabins okay. and we called and what do you know? They had one like that night. Yeah. <laughs> and so we we stopped there and that was De La Cour Ranch in Lone Pine. And it was one of my absolute favorite stops. It's run by this woman, Julie, who does everything herself. She like moves all the boulders with the tractors herself and created this beautiful farm She grows all these vegetables, has chickens, fruit trees, but the most amazing part of it is this lavender farm. And she has you pick lavender and people stop by on their way. She has it all dried in in jars and sells it in the barn. But we got to gather eggs with her for breakfast and pick plums off her tree and stay in one of her cabins and just hear her story. And so that was a nice surprise and also just a beautiful, beautiful spot in this canyon overlooking the mountains. And the desert colors are so incredible, like all these Uh dusty rose and browns and yellows and sage greens. And all of that also gives me so many ideas for painting when I'm doing those layouts I'm thinking about those colors for the lettering for that page and the little illustrations of lavender that I'm going to do on the side and yeah all of it is very inspiring to me to travel like that yeah yeah so yeah from there we went up into Tahoe and Lassen and then over to Humboldt Uh we stayed at the Humboldt Bay Social Club which Uh is this really cool spot that a a couple has turned all these I think it might have been a naval base I'm not sure okay it had several buildings on the property and it's right on the water and they turned them into these really cool kind of cabins and cottages that you can rent and we we rented the ranch house for a couple nights yeah and explored that whole area of like arcada and eureka sure did a lot of hiking yeah and playing on the beach yeah and they also have drag racing right there at humboldt Bay social club it's the samoa drag strip okay and the day that we were there it was um Volkswagen day. So okay. anyone with a Volkswagen who wanted to race uh-huh. came and raced their Volkswagen. Oh, that's so fun. <laughs> and it was hilarious because yeah. it was just some locals having fun. And then there was people with like actual souped up right. like <laughs> vans or buses that they were like racing. But right. it, was, it was fun to watch. The kids loved it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from there, we just came back down the one and then uh-huh. um, went through Sea Ranch and then came home. Um, And then supplementing that one big trip over the course of the pandemic, we did several kind of weekend trips. Um, We had a baby right at the beginning of the pandemic. So we were home for everybody was home for a while. But, um, yeah, once we could kind of travel more easily with the baby, then we um, did some a couple more weekends in Tahoe. We went to Yosemite, Uh um, Carmel, uh, Santa Barbara again. Um, yeah. A few side trips. Yeah. And it feels like a lot, but California is so massive and so yeah. diverse agriculturally mm-hmm. and geographically, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, there's so many places, you know, not touched even yeah. in, your, in your massive road trip of the state, which is remarkable sometimes when you think about our state here. Yeah. You mentioned, too, in the introduction that there, you know, in terms of things that um, 
surprised you? I won- I'm wondering if some of these things that you stumbled upon, like you, is it the Paiute Cultural Center? Yeah. So that was right yeah. near um, Lone Pine, near the lavender okay. farm that we stayed. Oh, by, okay. And that was a fascinating stop. Um, so, you know, the, the Native American culture in California is so prevalent, especially when you're driving around it. You just, you know, you see yeah. it everywhere. Um, and you are just constantly reminded of the people who are here first and of their culture and their tradition. And so the tribe that was um, the Paiute Shoshone tribe that is near Lone Pine has a cultural center and museum. And a portion of it is dedicated to the the food that okay. uh, that tribe produced and that was produced near where we were staying. And some of the community there is saving some of the seeds, the original seeds that were grown. And they have this garden, this amazing garden where they're growing those items and teaching uh-huh. people about some of the the things that were eaten years ago and trying to preserve them. Yeah, so it was really cool. fun to, to learn about some of the culinary traditions and yeah. agricultural traditions of, of that area. Yeah. Yeah. And how food was produced before we sure. got here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there's, it's not deep in the, there's not a lot of it in the book, but some of that history of the state yeah. too is really nice to, to see mentioned. You mentioned migrant workers and migrant mm-hmm. laborers, farm workers, which of course anybody who's taken any sort of road trip around yeah. our state yeah. is aware of how much agriculture is here and how many people it takes yeah. to produce, you know, any sort of produce. Yeah. So, And that's a hard thing, too, to think about the yeah. produce of California. So much of it is sent elsewhere and mm-hmm. you're driving through, you know, like down the five, you're driving through these just massive farmlands yeah. and not really sure about the labor practices that are happening there. I think one of the reasons that we we love having our CSA um, is because I I can see very clearly what farms they're coming from. Ours is called Eating with the Seasons, and it's a group of different farms that are within an hour or two of where we live. A lot of it comes from like the Watsonville area, which is a little warmer, slightly south of us. But I think that's a way to kind of, you know, it's hard because it's it's more expensive, right? So that is one part of the consideration. But we have this monthly subscription, which helps support certain farms that might be smaller and it allows them to secure wages that are fair for their for their employees. Sure. So that's one way that, you know, we can do it. And I think having a CSA subscription on a weekly basis like we do is um more affordable than shopping all the time at the farmer's market. Right. But you get a similar quality and things are coming from, there's a lot of transparency on where the food is coming from. And you yeah. can look at the farm's websites and read about them and who works there. And mm-hmm. yeah, so that's yeah. that's one thing that I think about. But yeah, it's hard. California yeah. is a tricky spot when it comes to food production. Yeah. Yeah. And CSAs are fun too, because you never know what you're going to get sometimes, you know, might yeah. be something, a new ingredient that can be fun yeah, to work with. Absolutely. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about all of the recipes in the mm-hmm. book, but I know I know the blender muffins yeah. are a, a social media hit at <laughs> least, but other recipes that you would recommend people start with if they're cooking from your latest book? Yeah, sure. So um, let's see. I, I tried to include more um, vegetarian main courses in uh-huh. this book. Because I feel like people are always asking for them. And we host a lot of dinner parties and gatherings. And I feel like I'm always looking for like a hearty vegetarian main, especially if you're sure. hosting people who are not used to having a vegetarian meal. They, You know, I'm fine eating a million sides, but sometimes it feels different. Yeah, <laughs> It feels nice to have like a, a main course. So um, a couple main courses that I included. One is the walnut enchiladas. Uh-huh. And of course, in uh, California, we have so much... Mexican influence on our our food. Um, And this is certainly not a a traditional preparation of the dish, but um, I grew up eating a lot of enchiladas. My my family made them and um, this is just my twist on them. So I I tried to think about um, different ingredients that, uh, you know, kind of came from places that we visited. So uh, driving, you know, between here, not far from the five, I guess, between kind of the Santa Cruz Mountains, I think we were en route to um, Stanislaus National Forest, which okay. is kind of on the way to Yosemite. Yeah, There's just miles and miles of nut groves and a lot of walnuts and almonds are produced there. So I was thinking about walnuts and how I could use those differently and how they're kind of a good source of protein and a good crunch and they're hearty. So I, I included those in walnuts one night and I thought, oh, this is 
pretty good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and added a nice, a nice kind of flavor and texture to the dish. So there's walnut enchiladas in there that are pretty simple to make. I try to really get uh, all the ingredients like as simple as possible. Yeah. Um, and I um, don't make everything from scratch. So I certainly, you know, bought the the sauce and sure. tortillas and everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, you grew up with a walnut tree in your yard, right? I as did. A kid. I had a walnut tree yeah. in the front yard. So I was also thinking about that. So yeah. My own. It's so interesting. I'd never had a close up look at a walnut tree until actually earlier this week. I was oh, on yeah? a farm and I, I looked at one and I learned, you probably know this, that when the nut is ready, it just kind of falls out of its fruit and you just collect it on the ground and then, yeah. you know, you have to shell it, obviously. But yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. And right now I just saw a tree a couple of days ago. They're like these big green balls uh-huh. and they slide, you know, slowly dry into right. the little shells that we see. Yeah. <laughs> so fascinating. Yeah. Um, before we get to our little game that we end with, obviously, we're a show on cookbooks. So I always like to ask our guests uh, a, a little bit about cookbooks more broadly. If there are particular books or authors that have been influential to you over the course of your career, either when you were wanting to, you know, pursue cookbook photography or once you became an author yourself? Yeah. So when I was studying photography, there were a couple of cookbooks that I looked to a lot for visual inspiration. Uh One book is called The Taste of Black, Concepts and Photos by Bjorn Lindbergh and Recipes by Jonas Borson. Yeah. And it's really an art book cookbook, which um, I love. But all the photos are kind of bizarre looking things that I certainly have never tried to make. Everything's black. Um, All the food is like really dark or black and it's just beautifully shot on a white light box and they're very graphic images. And I just found this whole kind of aesthetic very inspiring, even though I'm very much drawn to color. I love this book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Another book that I looked uh, to a lot when I was in grad school was Olivier Rolanger's Contemporary French Cuisine, 50 Recipes Inspired by the Sea. And I've never made a recipe out of this book, but I love it because of the photography. So there's... um, Um, also a very graphic look. I think when I was in New York, I was always shooting things on black or white, Mm -hmm. really focusing on ingredients. Um, But this is very much color driven. Things are grouped by color palette, shot on a white light box, um, sort of beautiful, you know, yellow beans next to the white beans that are opened up next to seafood. And of course I'm shooting vegetarian food, but this is just all about the aesthetics. He isolates just like one tomato on a on a page to really look at the seeds and the skin and the color of it. Um, but there's these yeah. kind of Photoshop looking <laughs> illustrations of ingredients all grouped together. And I know it's very different aesthetically than what I do now, but I also think about grouping the ingredients um, on a page to show you how to make a dish. Sure. And this sort of informed the the art book cookbook that I did as my thesis project with um, uh, Will Goldfarb, a pastry chef in New York. Um, around that time, it was the the images were sort of abstract and graphic like that isolating yeah. ingredients that went into a dish and I'm then, so glad you yeah. pulled those two out too I've never seen either of those books I'm going to snap a few photos so so our followers can see yeah. a little bit of that works those are new to me another book that I, I look to a lot are um, well all the books by Leah Koenig I feel oh, like yeah. often around Jewish holidays I pull out her books because she's just got kind of all the staples that I'm looking for to make special holiday dishes but this little book of Jewish sweets um, by Leah Kinnig is really um, a great book to have on my shelf yeah. <laughs> and very sweet. It's small and beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, the Moosewood cookbooks are sure. always very much inspirational to me by Molly Katzen. And uh, she has her handwriting and uh, little illustrations um, all worked into the recipes themselves. Mm-hmm. And I like to do the same thing. Um, there are not any photos in her books, but... Um, I just find them very inspiring. And and they were so different, I think, at that time. Like, I can't think of any other really big mainstream cookbooks that um, are completely handwritten. Like, all the recipes are her handwriting. I just love it so much. Right. Um, And And a vegetarian book, you know, 50 plus years ago, she first published her first book. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is a first edition book. It was a gift that was given to me. It belonged to my husband's grandmother and was found at her house in Vermont several years ago. And the family gifted it to me. And it's like my prized possession. I love it so much. That's so great. But then in terms of other um, books that are maybe more similar to how I like to cook or flavors that I like to put together, Mm -hmm. um, I love Otolang. Plenty, um, and I love How to Cook Everything Vegetarian by Mark Bittman. Sure. Both of them just have so many great, beautiful flavor combinations that 
um, are inspiring to me when thinking about vegetarian dishes. Yeah, those are so great. And I'm so glad you pulled some of those off so we can we can take a look at those. So, yeah. um, okay, last question before we play our game. What do you think makes a great cookbook? Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm so visually oriented that I, I really want to see beautiful yeah. photography and illustration. Um, you know, simplicity is also important to me just as a cook. I, I get overwhelmed by long recipes. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, of course, drawn to vegetarian cookbooks. So sure. That's what I use the most when I'm cooking. Yeah. But visual, visual, it has to be, I have to see a photo of the finished dish. Otherwise, I might not be making it. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. That, that's fair. All right. Well, we'd like to end with a little game. So the game I developed today, um, I'm terrible at thinking of names for them, but we're going to call it Dinner a la Blank. Um, okay. Inspired partially by your, your road trip book and your Mediterranean book and this travel concept. Um, we have our ingredient cards in front of you. So I thought we'd play a couple rounds. You can draw one card from each of the piles there. And that's kind of what you have to work with. And then tell us where what you might make and a place that it might be that might have inspired that. Does that make sense? Like sure. dinner a la, you know, Santa Barbara and I'm making this tonight. So Ooh. tell us what we're working with first and then um, what you might make and where you might make it. Okay. So I pulled kimchi, tofu, bell pepper, and lemon. Okay. <laughs> I love it. This is delicious already. Yeah, that looks good. Okay. So, uh, this is actually interesting, maybe, because this is the first book that I've included tofu in. I oh, think I've had okay. a complex about it. Wow. Because yeah. I feel like I really wanted my books to apply to anyone and not scare people who might not be leaning towards a vegetarian diet away, sure. thinking like, oh, another tofu recipe. I can't do tofu, you know. And um, I eat a lot of tofu. I really like it. Yeah. We have it often for weeknight dinners. And um, anyway, so I, in this book, this is the first time that I've included a tofu, like a straight up tofu recipe. It's uh -huh. like fried tofu. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and uh, the way I do it in the book um, is I uh, slice it in, in squares and put it in a skillet and um, let it kind of you know fry for quite a while in olive oil yeah and get crispy it takes a long time and you have to try not to move it but i add a lot of onions but in this you could certainly add bell peppers uh -huh. so i would start by frying cubes of tofu wait for them to get a little crispy i would add some bell pepper slices of bell pepper it doesn't take quite as long to cook as the tofu so i'd add it sure. about halfway through and then i'd do a big squeeze of lemon a couple times throughout the cooking of it to kind of infuse that lemon flavor and of course lemons are so prevalent everywhere in California. Yes, the yeah. Meyer lemon is uh -huh. just like, I can't tell you how many Airbnbs we stayed in that had a lemon tree in the backyard. Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> and when it's lemon season or citrus season, which seems to just be ongoing around Year here. Round, yeah. Um, we, I feel like we always get like a big bag of lemons from somebody and I'm always trying to incorporate it. Yeah. Um, and then kimchi, I would just absolutely top it all off with kimchi at the yeah. end. So once that tofu was crispy with some bell pepper, um, can I add anything else to it? Yeah, here? you can assume you have like a you okay. know a basic pantry larder okay. to work with. Okay. So yeah. Uh -huh. So um, Bragg's amino liquid aminos yeah. is kind of a soy sauce substitute. Right. I use that a lot lately, and I use it in um, this book and sort of my basic salad dressing. Um, I also often so the the recipe in the book um, also has sesame oil. Okay. So it has sesame oil, Bragg's olive oil. Uh -huh. um, and then I love the idea of the acid being like that lemon. With yeah. the, I would put it with the Bragg's too. Yeah. Um, and then I would just top the whole thing with kimchi. That's awesome. And, and where would you serve this? On oh, your... I mean, I would eat it on a weeknight dinner. On a weeknight here in here I think so. Home. I don't usually make tofu for a crowd because yeah. you can only fry about one cube at a time. Maybe right. if you did it all in the oven, you could do a few cubes. That's true. Okay. Yeah, but I think I would have it for a weeknight dinner. Okay. Yeah. I'd put maybe I some that. cilantro, fresh cilantro on top. Sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe put some rice on the side. Yeah. It sounds yeah. great. Lunch. I would eat a, for a lunch. A great lunch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should we do one more round? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I've got kumquats. Okay. Or maybe it's kumquats. We had a big discussion. Oh, did you? I've always about said this. kumquats, but I think I, it's kumquats. Okay. Uh, for some reason, I'm not sure why I said kumquat, but I got corrected recently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have kumquats, chickpeas, asparagus, and garlic. Oh, nice. Okay. So I'm just going to set kumquats aside, okay. if I may. And so 
asparagus, I love it roasted um, uh-huh. on a sheet pan with a lot of olive oil and salt and pepper. And it gets crispy on the edges. And I would certainly put some garlic on that. Um, I might even throw the chickpeas right on the the sheet pan with it all. Sure. Um, so that they get a little bit of that flavor and a little bit of crispiness. Sure. Um, and then I would add some onions and... Maybe that's about it. Yeah. And then I would I would just eat all of that maybe like on a bed of rice or just on its own. Yeah. Um, and then the kumquat. So I had a book launch party. Uh, this is something I've been doing for years and it's slightly ridiculous, but I love making necklaces out of kumquats. Oh, okay. On, the whole on, kumquat? Just yeah, on string? just like a bead. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So I get a big needle and some pastry twine and yeah. I make a necklace with a few kumquats and sometimes I've passed them out at dinner parties uh-huh. and everybody can just put their own kumquat necklace on yes i don't know why i just think it's hilarious <laughs> and kind of fun <laughs> but um we we had a whole um edible necklace making station at my book launch party that was in half moon bay okay um in april and yeah so i would just have make everyone a necklace out of the kumquats and serve the asparagus on the side i love that <laughs> i love that <laughs> Oh, that's so fun. Well, now I can't wait to make a kumquat necklace. I'm going to have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You can put some like shishito peppers on there. Oh, yeah. You could string some carnations on there. Yeah. They do really well out of water for a long time. Okay. You have a little pop of orange, green, and pink. Right. Very pretty. Oh, that's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) The kids like them too. Yes. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun, Erin. Thank you so much for hosting us here at your home and for being on Salt and Spine with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Erin Gleason's Forest Feast, the blender muffins, and walnut enchiladas. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and much more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe where wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hard cover cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.